0: I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Sara Hagdusti, who is the current executive director of Win Without War. Sara, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: What got you interested in foreign policy and maybe what made you decide to go into this specific line of work?
1: I was one of those people where my very first protest was marching against the war in Iraq. And that was a real turning point for me. And I remember both the energy and the hope in those protests and also the aftermath of what happened. And for me... I really wanted to get into this work because I never wanted to be protesting another war where the decision had already been made. And I wanted to do everything I could to stop that from ever happening again, which is how I ended up at Win Without War.
2: Can you tell us a little bit about Win Without War? Like, what do you guys do? What's the mission of the org?
1: We are a movement organization. We have hundreds of thousands of activists all around the country. And what we do is we think about how we can build peace, essentially. And when you think about what does peace look like, the way I think about it is building peace means that every single person gets to have dignity and thrive without the fear of violence. And when we look at what actually makes us safe, the biggest threats we're facing are climate change, our pandemics, and none of those have military solutions. And when you look at something like the Pentagon budget, where despite the Pentagon never passing an audit, taking pandemic relief money and spending it on dress uniforms and spending billions of dollars on planes that can barely stay in the sky. They keep getting more money year on year. And what we saw is an F-35 is useless in the middle of a raging pandemic when essential workers can't get the protective equipment they need. So what we do is say, these priorities are out of whack. They're not making anyone safer. In fact, When we pretend things have military solutions that don't, we're making the world more dangerous and we're wasting resources that could be used in schools, could be used in hospitals, on weapons manufacturers and lobbyists.
0: You were born in Iran. You grew up in Sydney. Now you're here in the States working on American national security interests. How did those different kind of experiences and sort of living and and having a background all over the world sort of changed the way you think about foreign policy.
1: The way it changed the way I think about foreign policy. I remember I grew up as a really strong feminist with my family and when I was in Iran, I was in Iran when I was 9 and 10 years old. And when I came back to Australia after that, I remember there were so many people who were like, oh my God, you're so brave. And it was just, you're so brave for just existing. And I was like, I walk around with my aunties who wear nail polish and talk down like besiege about that. And like, I was taught this kind of like fierce independence from a very young age. And what I'm grateful now is People are seeing that fierceness on the streets and on their TVs in the way they hadn't before. And in Australia, there was, I also experienced a lot of sexism there, but no one ever talked about it the same way or thought about it the same way. And for me, a lot of those experiences of growing up between Iran and Australia and now coming to the US is you really learn about how narratives shape how people think about things and how often it's really wrong and for me another like really defining experience has been just how many different governments have decided that they can claim whether or not i'm muslim so the iranian government thinks i'm not at all muslim and given that i am married to an excellent jewish man and love my dog Very clearly not Muslim enough. But within the U.S., I was also impacted by the Muslim ban. So clearly way too Muslim. And for me, really seeing how those things tie into each other and that someone like me is not allowed to define my faith for myself because governments are too busy doing it for me has been a really interesting tipping point in how you think about politics and the personal and how it shapes war and peace.
2: What originally brought you to the U.S.?
1: I wanted to work on these issues. Um, Australia usually follows the U.S. in a lot of things, and it felt easier coming to the U.S. and changing foreign policy here than trying to redefine the Australia-U.S. alliance.
2: That's interesting. I would love to, you know, shift our focus a little bit to current events in Iran. I don't know whether or not Win Without War has played a role in supporting protesters in Iran or or not, but would love to hear a little bit about how the work you're doing at Win Without War may sort of align or kind of intersect with both, I don't know, the the, the goals of the protest itself, as well as sort of international movement building more generally.
1: For us, we really believe in an approach to the world that centers human rights and justice. So in that sense, we've been working on it and supporting it. We are not like there is so many organizations that work purely on human rights in Iran. They are the ones that deserve all of the credit in this moment. Our job has been amplifying those voices and doing what we can to support them.
0: As an Iranian woman who is an avowed feminist, how are you viewing the current protests?
1: With a lot of hope and despair at the same time. What I love to tell people is people have been protesting for change in Iran since before I was born. And people often forget that there has been generations of generations of organizers and activists and change makers in Iran who have either been forced to flee the country, who have been arrested. Many of them have been murdered. And despite that legacy of generations, people are still showing up on the street and people are still demanding change. And what I remind people is, I think, especially the current moment in Iran, protesters are redefining our imagination of what is possible and how movements can really shape change and what they can do. And I think it is heartbreaking and also phenomenally inspiring to watch.
0: So let me push on that a little bit. So... You know, I think everyone can be behind the bravery of the people of Iran who are obviously standing up to oppression. How effective do you think this really is? I mean, it's clear that there's kind of no leadership structure. There are no formal demands other than sort of like get all of them out so how How do you think that this is really changing sort of what we expect? because we've seen leaderless protest movements elsewhere, you know, Hong Kong being a great example of this the Arab Spring in a variety of ways also being a a good example of kind of these sort of amalgus protests that kind of end up with some results. But like, do you think that's more effective than like sort of a hardened resistance, small resistance movement?
1: There is definitely a playbook we've seen in the past where you have a more centralized movement that leads to mass strikes, and that can often be there's almost like a formula you look for in terms of revolutionary change. That's not necessarily the playbook we're seeing in Iran right now. We are seeing more strikes happening, and that's been really interesting to watch. All of that said, that is a formula that has been used over decades that might not be relevant anymore in some contexts, right? And... I think when you look at centralized movements, those are particularly hard to be able to like play out in a context like Iran where it is really easy to arrest leaders. It is really easy to sort of snuff those kinds of movements out early. And what I think we're seeing is these protests are still going. I think at the beginning of this movement, People did not expect these protests to have the longevity that they have currently had. People did not expect them to be able to have the intersectional analysis that they've had. They are very much rooted in Kurdish resistance movements. And there is incredible histories of organizing within the Kurdish space as well in Iran. And that's really exciting to see that that be a source of solidarity as opposed to a source of division within protest movements in Iran. And that's why I want us to, again, not dismiss this movement because it's not following a 20th century playbook. We're seeing potentially a totally new playbook being written within an authoritarian context that we're seeing more of around the world. And that's what's exciting. And I think that we can't predict what's going to happen because all of us have failed so spectacularly at predicting what's going to happen so far.
2: So there were reports recently in the last couple of weeks that that Iran might be abolishing or or sort of reforming, you know, the, the morality police. And then, you know, I think there were some conflicting reports about whether that was the case and, and what that would look like but i'd love to hear you know if if either those security forces were were being reformed in some way should we think of that as a sign of success and progress or is this ultimately the sort of subtle actions of an authoritarian regime to kind of like loosen the strongholds in some ways as a way of ultimately maintaining a larger Form of control, like I feel like we're starting to see this pattern around the world in which autocratic leaders will give an inch rather than actually doing any of the sort of meaningful reforms that are actually required to have real social change, and in doing so, maybe like further entrench their power. So, like I I would love to hear like how you how you see that. You know, like what what your thoughts are on those reports and and what that actually means for the sort of success of the protests or not.
1: It's a total both end, in my opinion. I think that Jafar Montazeri, who was a top prosecutor in Iran, had a press conference when he made a kind of vague comment about the morality police, and that was spun as it's being disbanded. It's unclear if that is the case. I will say historically, there have been other press conferences where political leaders have made vague comments. And then even if they hadn't intended it to go a certain way, it has ended up snowballing. We might see that. It's really hard. Right. So the morality of police in Iran is the equivalent of state-sanctioned goons that go around harassing people. If that doesn't happen, is that a good thing? Yes. Is that anywhere near what protesters are asking for? Absolutely not, right? And I think that we can say it's good for people to have a little bit of breathing room while also saying that the morality police never should have existed. There should not be state-sanctioned goons that go around harassing people anywhere. And you're right. We need to be really critical of actions that are performative by authoritarian governments that must real reform asks. The people in Iran want a real say in their government. They don't have that right now. And abolishing morality police isn't getting them closer to that. And I think what is really key here is. We can say that this is obviously a sign that the Iranian government is feeling pressure from the protesters, that the protesters are having impact. That is absolutely true. And it is also a sign that the Iranian government is trying to give a little bit so that they don't have to give in to the actual demands of what people want, which is a real say in their lives and a real say in their government.
0: How likely is it that we're going to see the Iranian people get a real say in their lives and a real say in their government? I find it hard to believe that without a unified, potentially armed movement that at least co-ops the military, if nothing else, that they're going to be able to topple this regime that's been so powerful and so well sort of held together for so long.
1: There's a few things in Iran that I think is worth pulling out. One is, nothing breeds religious secularism like 12 years of compulsory religious education. So there is a lot of dubiousness about the Islamic government. And one of my favorite sayings in Iran is like, the Islamic Republic is neither Islamic nor a republic. The other thing is, there's also compulsory military service in Iran. So you see a lot of people who are in the military who aren't necessarily affiliated
2: with the regime.
1: So in terms of like, could that shift? Maybe. Then you have, again, having compulsory military service in some ways makes that more likely. That's totally different to the elite military services that are the closest to the regime, which are things like the IRGC. Now, again, you're right. Is this following the traditional playbook of what we've seen for how change happens? No, it's not. Do I think that tomorrow we're going to see the regime topple? I would not say that. But if you had me betting on the regime or the people of Iran, I bet on the people of Iran. Right. And again, the reason I say that is. When you think about the generations of people who have come and who have been lost, and the fact that people are still going, that kind of resilience, that kind of determination, it's just not sustainable for any government to be able to hold on to this without breaking at some point. And I think the challenge here is, what is the breaking point going to be? And I think that's the part we don't know.
2: So we've all been watching the World Cup recently, and the world—it feels to me like the World Cup. A lot of political issues tend to come to a head in one way or another. Um, and sure enough, you know, during the World Cup, there have been fans, you know, protesting and showing solidarity with with protesters in Iran. Is that the sort of world stage where you feel like people can can sort of meaningfully move the needle and draw attention to these issues, or? is there uh, from your perspective does it almost feel i don't know like it 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 trivializes the struggle when it's in the context of a of a sporting event i'm curious how you how you perceive those types of actions from fans and from players etc
1: they can absolutely move the needle and i think the reason why you see a government like qatar cracking down so hard on any protesting within the world cup is because they can move the needle And because there is so much attention going on and so many people are are watching these sporting events. The other thing I'll say is football in Iran is so important. And I remember back in the day, the Iran-Australia World Cup qualifier and I was in my hometown of Kerman, which is like this small, sleepy, very conservative town in Iran. And when Iran got to the World Cup, everyone was out on the streets playing music. And I remember the security guards coming in on us. And there was like a like 20-second showdown. And then everyone stopped and the security guards started dancing as well. And they were like, just today we are all going to celebrate. So I've definitely seen firsthand the power of sporting events to be able to like even move things for a moment. When you see Iranians protesting their national team, it's a sign of how frustrated and how angry they are. And that needs to be said. It's also the fact that the national team didn't sing the anthem and that they were protesting themselves, that was courageous. So many of them were having their families threatened back in the country. They knew that those kinds of actions would have real consequences. And yes, sporting events matter. Any, I am also an activist, so you are getting a biased view. But anytime where you have millions of people watching, you can start a conversation. And be that in Iran or be that when Morocco won and held up the Palestinian flag, symbols matter and symbols create change.
0: What role should the U.S. play in supporting the protesters? Because it's so easy in this case for the authoritarian regime to just sort of say, oh, this is outside agitators coming in. It's the West meddling in our society. How do we support? Uh, the leadership of the Iranian people, without making it even easier to blame us for internal strife?
1: One of the most important things anyone can do right now is that executions have started in Iran. Over the last week, we've seen two protesters, Majid Reza Rahnavard and Mohsen Shekari, be executed in relation to the protests. Every single government should be condemning these actions and in the strongest possible terms. And also anyone who is listening to this podcast right now, you should be going on social media. You should be talking about these executions. You should be condemning them. Please do what you can to spread the word. There is a moment here where these protests have been going on for a long time, you're seeing them fall out of the headlines. And as a result, you're also seeing violence be stepped up in the country. The more we can keep the spotlight on what is happening, the more we can hopefully stem some of the violence from becoming worse. And that is really key. I also think there is phenomenal action happening win the UN to get Iran removed from the Commission of the Status of Women. The US government has is supportive of that effort. And there are phenomenal organizers who are pushing for that to happen. And I hope that they do win. It does look like it's on a good track. And again, people who are listening, feel free to support that any grassroots pressure, especially in different countries. And Reinforcing to the Biden administration that you want them to do more of this work, I think would be fantastic. And lastly, I thought the Biden administration did a great job of creating a new general license around technology that protesters are using. I don't have great answers here, but I think the question is what else can we do to be supporting protesters under authoritarian regimes, especially ones where there are lots of sanctions frameworks? What are the relief valves there that don't support elites but support the people who are trying to create change? And I think the more intellectual heft we can give that question, the more we can hopefully
2: accelerate.
0: Well, let me bring some intellectual heft to that question. Zoe Weinberg, you are a venture capitalist who works sort of around these issues. What do you think? What tech? Solutions should we be backing? What are some of the basic uh, things that we should be looking at on these issues?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of you know, sort of incredible open source tools that have been used to you know, sort of arm protesters or human rights activists around the world, and it's things that you may be familiar with, like a Signal, as well as things like VPNs, like Tor, and and so forth. I think what's really challenging is a lot of regimes, and Iran is one of them really do use control over the internet as as a form of political control and manipulation and so the amount of state-sponsored internet blackouts that that happen globally but also have have happened at you know at a higher frequency in places like Iran you know it's not just a access to the internet issue it's like a, it's a real human rights issue and i'm glad that the political conversation i think has evolved in such a way that People realize that that importance, but I think we need to continue to support the types of tools that that allow people to organize. And there's institutions like the Open Tech Fund in the U.S. that historically has uh, has supported those types of tools, and um, I think that needs to continue. You wrote a novel called Sunburnt Bales. Will you tell us a little bit about that? I wrote.
1: A novel called Sunburnt Veils It is a coming-of-age, young adult book. It is based in Australia, and it is written about a young woman, Tara, who wears hijab even though her parents hated, and on her first day in college, her classmates call in a bumfret when she leaves her bag and runs out of a lecture theater, and then follows the journey that results. And she ends up running for student politics and taking on leadership. And the book really explores how you can step up in the face of racism and hatred, but also really looks at what racism can be like, both in incredibly overt ways, as well as the more subtle ways that often feel like missed and you're not sure when you're in it you're like is that racism am I being oversensitive so I really wanted to explore some of that in the book and it was I've always wanted to write and I will say after having my first child it was like we need to get this done so I was really proud when it was published
2: Is there a reason that you chose, my understanding is it's sort of aimed at, it's it's a coming of age story and it's aimed at a younger audience. What was the thinking there versus writing a novel for, for adults?
1: I love young adult fiction and the books that made the most impact on me, there's one, it's Australian, it's called Looking for Alibrandi. It was one of the first novels I read that had A woman of color as the main protagonist. And it was so inspiring and so key to how I thought about the world that I wanted to write similar stories. I also grew up with Tamora Pierce. I grew up with all of those fantastic YA novels. And there's just, when you think of your favorite books, Those books you read when you're like 13, 14, and 15 stay with you in a way that other books just don't necessarily always do the same. So I really wanted to
2: write for that audience. I would love to hear what the reception has been and if you've heard from some of some of your readers. It's been great so far. And
1: the book got shortlisted for the Readings Award in Australia, which I was very, very excited about. I've gotten some really great notes from fans. It's very strange having fans now. Um, and getting to see younger people on Instagram talk about books just makes me like makes my heart swell and is full of love. And I will also say I'm working on my next novel right now, which is fantasy trilogy and that draws on lots of concepts of Iranian mythology, and also collective magic. A lot of magic systems in the world of fantasy are very individual-based, and I'm trying to see if I can make a collective magic
0: system happen. How do you think that Americans or or Australians view the Iranian diaspora? Because I, I think we don't often talk about the Iranian diaspora in this country, we often talk about the issues in Iran. but there, are, you know, there are plenty of Iranians here in America that have been living here for decades at this point
1: yes. And people view the diaspora in lots of different ways. You have shows like The Shahs of Sunset," which is one very particular representation of the diaspora. There's also a segment of the diaspora that really wants to be seen as. The overachieving model minority who has lots of doctors and lots of lawyers. And there's a lot of people who, again, you tell them you're from Iran, and the first thing they say is, Oh, I have one Iranian friend. And the thing that often people forget is diasporas have so much impact on how people are shaped. And a lot of folks will read the news and then. If they have that one Iranian friend who disagrees with the news, that voice will have a disproportionate impact on how they think about the country as well. So there's definitely a lot happening there. And like any diaspora, I think the Iranian diaspora is a little bit similar to the Cuban diaspora, where it can be quite fragmented. And you do see some really problematic tendencies in some of it, where you still have folks who are monarchists, you have a group like the MEK, who is very prominent in the diaspora. And then you have just everyday people who are trying to go home and see their families and live their lives and again, want dignity, who were all hit by the Muslim ban in recent years as well. So it's really interesting to see how that evolves, how the diaspora talks among itself. And then how it is shaped and reflected in popular culture as well.
0: One thing you touched on briefly was both your own faith and the fact that Iran, through religious education, has sort of secularized much of its population. How do you think about the role of faith in both your life and the current mass going on in Iran? I know that's also like the biggest question of all time to like describe your own religious journey and that of like a million other people.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I don't I don't think I can describe the religious journey of millions of other people. I will say I identify as culturally Muslim. And I think it's very common in other religious identities. I have lots of friends who are Jewish, who are Christian, who don't necessarily adhere to a lot of the teachings of that religion but still
2: can't separate themselves from the faith. I and mean, I mean for me I was brought up
1: in an Islamic household and so much of my adult life has been defined as whether or not I am Muslim or not. It is it is just like an inescapable part of my identity and one that also feels important in terms of solidarity of like some of my own family who are more devout and part of the story there that again i wanted to explore a little bit in the novel sunburnt is you don't hear about Folks who in Iran, again, who are devout, but also deeply critical of the government. You always assume that protesters are only secular. And there are lots of folks in Iran who are like, if I want to wear a hijab, I want to make that choice and I want it to be meaningful. I don't want it to be because state sanctions. And, or, have really radical politics in terms of they believe that Islam is more about how do you redistribute resources in a way that is more progressive and how you really accept other people from different faiths. And again, this government is the absolute opposite of that. And those voices are also really critical in these debates. And I wish that there was more space for what is that genuinely progressive, more secular Islam and those Islamic teachings. And we're seeing more of that. We're seeing like a whole schools of like female imams starting to show up. We're seeing more of that happen. We're seeing a generation of folks like me who would describe themselves as more culturally Muslim, but don't necessarily have homes where you're often not Muslim enough for a lot of organized advocacy, but you're also clearly too Muslim to be totally secular. And I think, again, there's some really interesting innovation happening there that I can't wait to see where it goes.
2: I think that's a really good point that these protests aren't necessarily about objecting to religiosity. It's about choice and the choice to be more observant or, or less, but to, but to have that be sort of an individual matter. One last question here. You know, so much of these protests have rightfully focused the spotlight on the incredibly courageous women and girls who are, who are kind of leading the charge. What has been, you know, sort of the role of of men, of their fathers, brothers, et cetera, in, in helping to support this movement? And what do you think are the ways that they can be most effective in, you know, helping to advance the cause uh, while also perhaps, you know, keeping, keeping the spotlight on the women who, who started this?
1: men have definitely been a part of the protests and in almost all of the videos i've seen women are in the center and there are like lots of men who are supporting them and also doing what they can to keep them safe and have their backs and i think that kind of active allyship and solidarity is really important and almost i would say a framework for others to look at and any kind of feminist movement we're seeing, it would be lovely to see more of that where anyone who is not part of that marginalized identity being being actively there and actively using their privilege to keep others safe, I think is the framework we should be looking at for what does real solidarity and what does allyship look like. So I'm seeing Iranian men do a lot of that work And it is fantastic to see it. And also in a place like Iran where there is so much privilege from being a man, seeing people actively like shifting that power through their actions is also really inspiring in of itself. And I hope we see more of it.
0: So with that, let's move on to our final segment where we each talk about something We're following either politically or culturally. Zoe, why don't you kick us off?
2: Sure. I wanted to highlight a play that I saw recently in New York called Top Dog, Underdog. Uh, It's by a playwright named Susan Laurie Parks. And it won the Pulitzer several years ago now, I guess maybe several decades ago. And it's a beautiful, funny, heartbreaking show about two brothers who are navigating the you know the world of, of making money in a, in a pretty challenging economic situation. The entire show takes place in one apartment and it was the first piece of theater I've seen in a while that like has really made me think and that I've been revisiting over the past couple weeks and it's up for a while. So uh, for, for listeners who are in the New York area, I would highly recommend seeing Top Dog Underdog.
0: Sara, what are you following this week?
2: I will also give a shout out to
1: a play and a PSA for any parents out there. Yesterday, I went to see the Bluey performance live, and it was an excellent time. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, and I think my three-year-old's mouth was open the entire time, and she could not believe that Bluey was on stage as a real character in the world. There was also a fantastic, we all got to play Keep Yuppie, where they threw giant balls into the audience and everyone got to play around with it, which was excellent. And the other thing I will give a shout out to is if you haven't watched White Lotus, you should. I'm not going to give spoilers because the season finale was last night. The first series really explores racial dynamics and colonialism in a really interesting way. The second one was more focused on gender and The subtleties of it, the writing is excellent. The fact that there are no good characters is really fun to watch as well. So if you're looking for something that has some biting satire and is a really good classic murder mystery, highly recommend.
0: This week I'm following some new border clashes between China and India. If you don't know, China and India have an over 2,000 mile border that is disputed. Though it has been largely peaceful since a war in 1962. Just two years ago, there were multiple clashes that killed 20 Indian soldiers and an undisclosed number of Chinese soldiers. Just today, there were more clashes, and while both sides backed off, I think these clashes are extremely important. Not just because mistakes and miscalculation could cause conflict, between these two rising powers with nuclear weapons, but also because their militaries have been largely untested. How they continue to handle these spats will tell us a lot about their strategy and capabilities as we continue to move towards a multipolar world. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative, and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Weinberg, and follow Sara at S. Hagdusti. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by FIFA's Accounting Practices. Corruption Machine Go Burr! So after you get your payout for voting to host a mega sporting event in an inhospitable authoritarian country, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.